on one morning, Nurse Jan, they do the chemo at about 4.30 in the morning. She came in and, and started hanging it. And I just said, no, I'm done. I am done. I just couldn't do it. I was done. And I remember Jan just sat with me like, you've got to do this. And I remember saying, why? Why do I have to? Because it's too hard. And we talked it through, but ultimately she kind of pointed towards the pictures and she said, look at those two babies and look at that dog. <laughs> He's huge. Welcome to Stories of Hope in Hard Times, the show that explores how people endure and even thrive in difficult times, all with God's help. I'm your host, Tamara K. Anderson. Join me on a journey to find inspiring stories of hope and wisdom learned in life's hardest moments. My guest today lives in San Antonio, Texas with her husband, two children, and her two dogs. After attending Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee, she moved to New York where she worked for NBC Sports. After two years of living and working in the city, she decided to pursue her dream of becoming a surgeon. And so she applied and was accepted to a post-baccalaureate medical school program at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles. After just one year of medical school, she received the news that changed her life forever. Routine blood work revealed she had an incurable, highly aggressive, stage four, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. She was just 27 years old. I'm pleased to present Caroline Rose. Caroline, are you ready to share your story of hope? I'm ready. I'm ready. Thank you for having me. Let's do this. Okay. One of the funny facts about you is your brother ended up being your bone marrow transplant. and. you now have some of his personality traits. Why don't you tell me about that? It's just so okay. unique and funny the to wildest me. Wildest thing. And and my husband still is kind of in shock. My brother and I are very different. He's three and a half years older. And growing up, we were close, but you know, I mean, I pushed his buttons and he pushed mine. And I remember the day that um, he got the news that he was a perfect um, match for the bone marrow. And he called me and said, well, I guess you're not adopted after all, because he'd always joke with me, like, <laughs> we could not possibly be related, you know? And so, and, you know, and it's actually pretty unusual for a sibling or a family member to be a match. And they match it on a scale of one to 10. And I think you have to be a six or seven to be considered a match. But <laughs> my brother was a 10. He was a perfect wow. match. So um, he was my donor. Um for both of my bone marrow transplants. And it, I mean, really it, we kind of thought it was coincidental at first, but I really have sort of, you know, adopted, I guess, through his immune system, these personality traits and these things I'll say or do. And my husband's close to my brother and knows him well. And he looks at me like, I married your brother. (laughs) So it's been, uh, it it really, I have his allergies. I have, you know. And you didn't uh, used to before, right? No, no, not at all. Even my kids notice it. They adore my brother. I mean, you know, we've been pretty open with them and hopefully an age appropriate way of sort of what, you know, health-wise I've gone through. And 
they know that their uncle saved their mom's life. So, you know, they think that's super cool and, you know, wow. And so they adore him, but uh, they will even say things at time like, gosh, mom, you're so much like uncle Chad. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if that's good or bad, but (laughs) But no, it really is. It really is true. Oh my goodness. That, that is awesome. That's really, really fun. Now we're going to go back in time to your life to just a complete switch when you went from being super active. Mm-hmm. Um, it says you've run seven marathons. Mm-hmm. You were planning on climbing Mount Kilimanjaro to mm-hmm. a day when everything changed. Why don't you talk yeah. me through where you were and that day of change? Sure. Yeah. Um, I was in a, a med school program out at USC in Los Angeles and it was my first year. So I like to say I was the uh, type A++. You know, I was regimented. I was I was no fun to be around. You know, I'd get up at 4.30. I'd be at the gym at 5 a.m. when they opened. I wanted the same treadmill. I mean, it was, you know, then I'd get to campus and study. And um, that was sort of my life. And I was a big runner. I'd done Boston, New York. Um, I'd just done my seventh marathon which was San Diego, got my fastest time, then did the LA triathlon. And then my brother called and said, Hey, do you want to go climb Mount Kilimanjaro in Africa over Christmas? It gave me about three, four months to train. And I said, absolutely. So I was actually training, um, to climb the mountain and I knew I had endurance, but I didn't have the strength. I didn't have, you know, uh, the, the muscular strength to carry, you know, a pack up a mountain. So I'd been working out with, uh, I think it was a 45 pound weighted vest. And I thought we lived in Santa Monica at the time. And there was a, they called the Santa Monica stairs. And I can't remember how many stairs, but I mean, it is a long staircase. So everyone goes, you know, up, down, up, down. So I did this with this weighted vest and pretty quickly, I noticed um, what I thought was muscle forming. My neck was bigger. I'd put deodorant on and really feel this new, what I thought was muscle in my, under my arm. Hmm. And I was proud of this. I was, you know, getting results very quickly. So I flew back to my hometown of San Antonio over Thanksgiving and my dad is a doctor. So he had lined up some blood work before we got the vaccinations that you get, you know, a month before Africa. Right. So it was two days before Thanksgiving and I went in that morning and did blood work in his office. So he got the results pretty quickly and he called and said, Hey, there was a mistake run on back and let's do it again. Went back, did it again, same results. And he called and he's a surgeon and I've never, ever had him cancel a surgery ever. My brother and I still are amazed. He canceled surgery. He said, canceled a surgery you need to come meet me in Dr. So-and-so's office right now. Wow. So I think it was the fact that he canceled the surgery that really got my attention because to be clear, I never had a symptom and never once had any symptom. And I absolutely will still say I was in the best shape of my life. I mean, that day I've never been quote unquote, (laughs) it's really ironic, healthier or stronger. And I just, I didn't look sick. Nothing about me looked that way, felt that way. So went to that doctor's office and he looked at me and just with his trained eye, 
he was a hematologist. He was a uh, mm. blood cancer, you know, and he looked at me and said, how long have those lumps been in your neck? And I look, I just was, I was the biggest compliment. I just want well, thank you. <laughs> you know, I thought he was complimenting my training, my muscle, mm-hmm. and they were not muscles, which I quickly realized they were the lymph nodes and mm-hmm. they had just grown and grown and grown. And the muscle that I thought was under my arm were actually more lymph nodes. So when he looked at me, he, you know, he pretty quickly knew, I think he did a two minute physical exam and said, come into my office. We need to talk. And, you know, just looked at us and said, I think this is lymphoma. No clue what that was, had not covered that in med school, you know, just was complete disbelief because again, I didn't have a symptom, didn't add up. It didn't make sense. Mm -hmm. So the next morning, the day before Thanksgiving, I went in that morning and, um, a general surgeon removed a lymph node uh, at the bottom of my neck. And that was what they did the biopsy on that afternoon. And we got the results, I think by three o'clock that afternoon, we knew it was a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. We knew that it was, um, uh, I think it was a B, a B cell. I can't even remember the full name of it, but what we didn't know was how widespread it was. Mm. So we had to go, we got through Thanksgiving that next Monday morning, I was at MD Anderson, you know, walking in as this, you know, I would say I walked in that morning, one person and left, you know, a cancer patient. And that was the day that I met my doctor and she ordered all the stage testing which is, you know, you go through the PET scans, the CT scans, bone marrow biopsy, you know, numerous tests to sort of just determine what is this, where is this, and what are we dealing with? Right. So a week later, I met with her again, and that's when she just said, hey, this is, this is everywhere. This is in your stomach, your spleen, and it's in your bone marrow, which is what wow. categorized it as stage four. And that, I think more so than the diagnosis itself, was just impossible to fathom. You know, it was just, I think I'd convinced myself, okay, maybe I've got some lymph nodes that need some treating, but to, to realize that it had just, you know, taken over my body mm-hmm. without my knowledge was just, I felt betrayed by my body in a way. I felt like, why didn't you tell me, you know, why didn't you give me a heads up? And, mm-hmm. you know, 17 years later, I look back on that day and I think, I think my body had tried to tell me. I just was so disconnected. My mind and my body were not one, you know, my mind told my body what to do, when to do, how hard to do it. Mm-hmm. And I, I wasn't listening at all. And so, um, it was so aggressive that we started chemo the next day. I went inpatient and started. What? And I remember, wow. I remember the only question we had, I said, well, what about fertility? You know, I'm 27 years old. I don't know what's going to happen, but you know, is, is, is this going to affect fertility? And they just said probably, but we cannot worry about that right now because we just have to save your life and we can treat you, but we cannot cure you. There's no cure for this. So our goal is to get you in remission, but just know when you get there, that's going to be kind of the beginning of waiting until it comes back. And then the question was, well, what, what happens when it comes back? And that's mm-hmm. when they said, you know what, we will figure that out when we get there. And that on top of everything else was just the, you know, I wanted, I wanted a plan. I wanted a goal. I was very goal, you know, and, and not having that goal of 
how do I fix it? How do I do that? You know, how do I win? Mm-hmm. That was a very, very difficult thing for me to accept and comprehend. Cause it's like, well, then why am I going to do this? It was, it was no doubt a shock and it was a, um, taking me off a life path that I was so firmly, uh, implanted in and something that I so thought was the right thing. And I always say it was like the first time God kind of hit me over the head with a sledgehammer, like, Hey, Hey, we're not going to go down that path. We're going to go this way. And that, you know, I'm hard headed and it's like, no, I don't want to go that way. But I think he knew that that it was take, it was take something that severe to get me to look up and sort of consider going a different route. Yeah. No, I I know. I felt that same way when our first son was diagnosed with autism. It was that mm-hmm. hit me on the head. What? Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> it's right. like, like life changing that hard. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Oh, what gosh, do you mean? Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Oh my goodness. I totally I I know how that feels. It's so disorienting, especially when you expect that, okay, this is my life. It's been this way. It's going to keep going this way. And all of a sudden God just sends you off on a detour and you're just like, wait a second. Right. This is not in my plan. (laughs) Right. And very humbling and scary. And once you realize we really don't have the control we thought we did, you know, it's, it's, that part sticks with you forever. You know, you, once you realize that you always know that yes. and it can cause a little fear and anxiety. And, but I think the more we sit in it and live in it and trust it and trust him, the more we, we realize it's actually kind of cool to not have that control. Cause it takes a lot of pressure off of us. You know, we kind of just have to learn to trust and follow as best we can. It's not always easy, but it, 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 it's a very comforting feeling once you practice it a while. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's sad to say that it takes something so life-changing as cancer to sometimes hit us over the head and say, wrong direction. You need to learn a few lessons. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Wish there were different ways we could learn these life lessons, but sometimes Mm -hmm. there's no other way versus instead, you know, you got to go through it. That's right. So why don't you take me through what this looked like for you and the, I want to call it living in limbo yep, phase yeah. that you went through afterwards. Talk mm-hmm. to me through that as well. After I was first diagnosed, I remember coming back after meeting the doctor that day, I came home and my uncle was involved with MD Anderson at the time. And I was staying at their house in Houston. And I remember him coming in because I was so upset because I, I said, I don't understand the point of fighting. I know I want to live and I know this is what I have to do, but why am I going to put myself through all this if if ultimately it's just going to come back and I'm going to have to do all this again and I don't even know if there's going to be a better option. You know, I mean, I was just Mm -hmm. in this tailspin of, and, you know, my uncle, um, he's not a man of many words and I know he's very wise, but I'm always just been a little bit in awe of him. And he came in and, and it's funny because of all people to comfort me, he was the you know last person I'd expect to walk in. But he said, listen, I've just been in these meetings, MD Anderson. I was there last week and I'm meeting with these researchers and these doctors and I'm hearing all of this, this that's in the pipeline, everything they're working on and studying and researching and where all this funding is going. And it may not be specifically to your disease, but... What I know is there is so much happening out there across the board that your goal right now needs to be to just buy time. 
because when this comes back, there will be another option. And that may not be the magic bullet, but by, you know, get through that. And then if you need it again, there will be, you know, so it kind of switched this mindset from, I want to fix, I want to cure. I want to do this now to just this, I have to trust and just buy time, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that applies to so many situations and pretty much any health issue really that we have, that we have to manage or live with. And it's, it's not ideal and it's not easy, but instead of, you know, if we can just sort of do what we have to do to live another day and just keep doing that, you know, who knows what's going to come out and who knows what treatment options available and what we're going to learn. And, and I think, um, that for me was the biggest switch that I needed. And that's sort of how I approached it. So when I went into remission the first time, that was really difficult because I was still, I wasn't a plus plus. I was maybe back to like a normal a, I mean, it, uh-huh. it took a little of the edge off, but I was still pretty. And my husband and I got married and then moved to Santa Monica, um, or moved back to Santa Monica. And I was in remission about eight months and I couldn't go back to school because I was still doing maintenance treatments. Sure. And I couldn't go back to my job that I had before because again, I would need too much time off. So I didn't know what to do with myself. And yeah, I was all of a sudden you went from full yeah. schedule medical student to right. what do I do? Right. How do I fill my time? What do I do? So what 100%. did you do? percent. And I couldn't run. I could run a little bit, but not what I could. So um, what I did and I, I swear this was thousand percent a God thing because, um, I, I rescued a dog and I've always loved animals, Mm -hmm. but we searched for a while for this little cottage that we lived in, in Santa Monica. And I was terrified of our landlord. He was from New Jersey and just very, (laughs) you know, uh, intense, shall we say. And at the top of our lease in big, bold letters, all caps was no dogs allowed. I think he's been, um, <laughs> later found out he'd been attacked by a dog as a child and just was not, he did because he visited his properties often, very involved, mm-hmm. did not want a dog. So one day I, I will never know why I just Google searched, you know, rescue dogs, Los Angeles. And this picture of this dog popped up. He was a great Dane lab mix, 11 months old, been horrifically abused, couldn't walk, needed reconstructive surgery. I called and a couple hours later brought him home. And my husband just was like, Caroline, this dog is 111 (laughs) pounds is emaciated. You know, how are we going to hide this dog? And I, it made no sense. And this dog did not trust anyone. This dog was broken. This dog was needed full-time care. And I just, you know, I say, that's why I say it was such a God thing because I just was terrified and I doubted myself, but I knew I had to, I had to bring this dog home Mm. and, um, took about two weeks and I was in the kitchen cooking steaks and he kind of walked, he got out of his corner because he'd been hiding in his corner for two weeks and he kind of walked in and I gave him a bite of steak and that was it. <laughs> that was like, that you was can buy my affection with food. <laughs> and, that, and, you know, and his name was Riley. He came with the name Riley and our last name is Rose. So mm-hmm. it was Riley Rose and this dog, he became my everything, you know, my job, my, my, my time was filled by rehabilitating this dog. So we would take him swimming and I was 
determined to do something besides the surgery that he needed. And it worked, you know, we went to the dog park is where I met my friends that are still some of my closest friends today. And this dog became my companion. He became my project. He became my source of comfort. And um, he, I think I always say, you know, I healed him. It's true, especially those first eight months. But then as soon as I was re-diagnosed, he then became, he's then started to heal me. And that was sort of our journey. The rest of his life was, he was giving it all back to me. Mm. Wow. That is powerful. It's interesting. I've, I've talked to people on the show before about people coming Mm -hmm. in and being a godsend in their lives, but I've, we've never dove in and talked about how God sometimes sends animals Animals. into our lives. I think for me, you know, I'm so blessed. I mean, I have such an incredible husband and my parents, my brother, my aunts and uncles and cousins. I mean, we have a really beyond amazing family. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes when I talk about Riley, I, I mean, I know they know, but I almost want to say like, it was these people with these humans were so incredible. I think for me, I saw what my diagnosis did to them and I saw the fear and I saw the tears behind closed doors that they tried to hide Mm -hmm. and it killed me. You know, I'm a people pleaser. I'm sensitive. I'm an empath. I, I took on their emotions. Right. So my solution was I'm okay, guys. I feel fine. I am going to be okay. And they weren't asking me to do that. I did that because I didn't want them to hurt and I didn't want them to worry. Mm-hmm. So I didn't even realize I was doing it. And then when Riley came into my life and when I was re-diagnosed for the second time, I, I, I realized I craved him, but I didn't know why. And it took years for me to really understand. I didn't have to be okay around him. I could, I could literally fold my body on top of his and he just gave to me and I didn't, mm. he didn't need anything except just my presence. And I say, and then as, you know, I was diagnosed for the third time and it went on, it was even more so once I became a mom, you know, I never want my kids to worry. So you always try to put on a brave face, but I didn't have to with him. Mm. And it just, I needed that. I needed something, somebody that I could just let go around. Mm. And it's like, he filled in those cracks that I just, it, it, it was like the glue that kept it all together for me. Mm. And God knew exactly what you needed, even oh, though it was a yeah. huge dog. <laughs> I mean, I think his happy weight was 140 and it was, oh my he actually became a service dog. Um, I guess the last five years of his life, he, um, he was certified. And so he was fly on the airplanes with us. And my brother was always thinking, Caroline, you're taking 140 pounds. You're taking a small pony on the plane. <laughs> I know, I know I am, but I'm doing it. I mean, that poor dog had, had more airline miles. It was hysterical. He went to Disneyland with us. I mean, the stories, it really was. Amazing. Oh my goodness. That is yeah. so, that's, that's fun. And it's, it's interesting. So I love that you were able to be raw and real. Mm-hmm. And I think that, mm-hmm. that that is an important point whenever we're struggling, that there yes. is someone or some animal that we can talk to, uh, 
obviously God is a good person, but sometimes you need some of that physical touch and, mm-hmm. and you got that through Riley. And that's beautiful that, that, 100%, yeah. that, that is one of the ways you got it. It's so, so incredible. Someone oh. once they said, dog is God spelled backwards. <laughs> and I'd never thought of that. And I thought I do, I deeply believe God sends angels, you know, mm-hmm. and sometimes I think Riley wasn't real, but I, it almost connected me to God more. I know this sounds crazy because Riley's love was so different and it was so uncomplicated and it was so big and consistent and loyal that it always reminded me of God's love. It was a very, it almost kept me looking up. I don't know if that makes any sense, but it was just so pure that when somebody pointed that out, I thought, Oh, that's right. That is, there is something to that. I think God knew exactly what he was doing when yes. he did that. Yes. yes. I love that. Now, um, you were able to have children before yes. you had the cancer come back a third time. Why don't you talk right. me through that journey? Because that was a yeah. journey in and of itself. It yeah. was a journey. Yeah. We, um, after my, my first, um, diagnosis, we were married and then I think the, one of the first things we did is we froze our embryos. So, um, we had met a doctor in downtown Los Angeles, fertility doctor who was, he was just phenomenal. And he said, look, I don't know what I can do, but I can try. So let's freeze your embryos because at this point we knew when the cancer came back, we knew the treatment was going to be a bone marrow transplant. So fertility post, you know, what I'd gone through already was possible, you know, questionable, Mm -hmm. but possible Mm -hmm. post transplant. I had been told that it was not possible. So the thought was, let's go on and freeze your embryos. Let's have those. So if you have to do a transplant sooner rather than later, we still have this to go back to. So that's what we did. And that's exactly what happened. We, you know, was then re-diagnosed, went through my first bone marrow transplant. Um, I think I, that was in July, 2006. And I think I was pregnant with my daughter in April of 07. I want to say that's right. Wow. And we had transferred two embryos and they actually both took. So it was a, my daughter was a twin and we lost her son. I mean, her brother, sorry. Um, about 24 weeks into the pregnancy. So he, uh, his heart stopped beating and we don't know why, but one theory is my first transplant, I didn't convert all the way to my brother, to my brother. It was kind of a 50, 50, and we have different blood types, which is wild, even though he's a perfect marrow match. So I had half of his blood, half of mine, and they are thinking maybe there was some interference with the electrical current of his heart with the contrasting blood types. Um, because after, after Ellie's twin, we lost three more babies the same way, not quite as far along, mm. but it created this, we don't know why. And they, I don't know if we'll ever know why it could mm-hmm. just be, they just weren't strong enough. Maybe the eggs weren't strong. You know, we we're not sure, but we lost her brother and, um, she was, he was the twin on top. She was on bottom. So she was born and he was born. Um, and she was born six weeks early because actually his fluid started leaking they were worried it would infect her sac. 
And the NICU team had come in and said, hey, she's going to be here for a while. You know, you just need to know. And that little girl was born. And I think she was out of the hospital before I was. I mean, she was just the strongest little thing. And um, she is just, I tear up. She's such a miracle. And then um, we, we, we had some other experiences where we lost some babies. And I think at that point, my husband and I just said, I don't, we can't go through this anymore. We're so Mm -hmm. blessed to have Ellie, you know, we're, Mm -hmm. we're, are we put, what are are we asking too much? Are we pushing our Mm -hmm. luck? You know? So we actually stopped um, trying, you know, we, we said, we are just going to let this be. And I got pregnant naturally. Wow. And that is my son. (laughs) He was born and he is healthy as can be. He is another miracle. Actually, I was, um, I think I was 34 weeks, 35 weeks at my OB and they do the stress test where they listen to the heartbeat Yes. and his heartbeat was, um, double what it should have been. Uh Oh, so we went straight to the hospital. They did a very, very, very fast C-section because they did the ultrasound. He was in heart failure. You could see the fluid <gasps> around his heart and his first EKG was abnormal. And then I think 24 hours later, they did another, it was normal and it's been normal ever since. And he is as healthy as can be. And again, we don't know why, but we caught mm. it and we, he was able to sort of, you know, be born and they are so close, those two. And they are so, every parent thinks their kids are the best. And I am not, you know, but they are just, they are the coolest little kids. They're just sympathetic to me. If, if people talk to me about fertility and whatnot, it's like, listen, never say never. Mm. Oh, don't ever say never. And that is no guarantee that anything is going to happen. But I just know what I was told and I know what happened. And Tommy, my son was written up in some medical journals. They called and asked, they said, Hey, this is the second reported case of a natural pregnancy post the type of transplant that I had. Are you okay if we share this? And I said, hell yes, I am. This gives people hope. This gives people, listen, I don't know if it's going to happen, but it's possible. And it's like, if you don't have hope, what's the point? You've got Mm. to have that hope and hold on to that. And I, I hope, and I, I believe that's what that has hopefully done for one person, at least one person. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, your story is such a story of hope that miracles happen. Mm-hmm. And, and, and sometimes we just have to be patient and wait for the right treatment to come down the pipeline, as you say, yeah. um, wait for the right specialist to come along in your life, wait for God to give you that baby. Yeah. Sometimes there's a lot of waiting involved with miracles, right? (laughs) (laughs) A lot of miracles. Yes. A lot, a lot of waiting, a lot of waiting. Oh my goodness. That is, that's awesome. We're going to take a quick break, but when we get back, I'm going to have Caroline tell us a little bit more about this third bout with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, what made this time different and why it was so much more the worth fighting for. Stay tuned. Hi, this is Tamara K. Anderson, and I want to share something special with you. When our son Nathan was diagnosed with autism, I felt like the life we had expected for him was ripped away and with it, my own heart shattered as well. It's very common for families to feel anger 
pain, confusion, and anxiety when a child is diagnosed. This is where my book, Normal For Me, comes into play. It shares my story of learning to replace my pain with acceptance, peace, joy, and hope. Normal For Me has helped change many lives, and I'd like to give this book to as many families as possible. We've put together something I think is really special. My friends and listeners can order copies of my book at a significantly discounted price, and we will send them to families who have just had a child diagnosed with autism or another special needs diagnosis. We will put your name inside the cover so they will know someone out there loves them and wants to help. I will also sign each copy. You can order as little as one or as many as hundreds to be shared with others. So go to my website, TamaraKAnderson.com and visit the store section for more information and to place your order. You can bless the lives of many families by sending them hope, love, and peace. Check it out today at TamaraKAnderson.com and help me spread hope to the world. And we're back. I've been talking to Caroline Rose, author, mother, dog lover, and cancer patient. We have talked about her two bouts with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and we are just getting ready to dive into her third bout. Let's let's talk about um, your third mm-hmm. relapse. Yeah. Uh, because at this point, it was different. You had those two babies. Yeah. They were young. How old were they when you had your third? They were five weeks and two. Oh my goodness gracious. Yeah. Elliot turned two. She was two years, one month and Tommy was five weeks. Wow. And how did you find out that you had relapsed? Well, um, I'd realized after my first two diagnosis, I'd realized what to look for. I'd realized the raised lymph nodes where they tended to appear. Mm. And the very visible were the groin area, sort of on the underwear line in the front. Mm. They were just very, um, the first two diagnoses, they were just almost like acorns under the skin. Very pronounced, very obvious. When I was pregnant with Tommy, they don't scan you, obviously. And you don't have, they can do blood work. But um, so I'd had back pain during that pregnancy, pretty horrific back pain, which is very natural with a pregnancy, very normal, Mm. nothing to worry about. And as my, you know, my tummy started to kind of fade a little bit, you know, five weeks after he was born, I just, I happened to glance in the mirror and I saw the lymph nodes that I couldn't have, you know, had been hidden by this, this tummy. And they were very, very pronounced. And I knew. I mean, there was no doubt in my mind and I'll never forget where I was. And I, I emailed my oncologist in Los Angeles. He followed me, um, locally. And I just said, I need to come see you right now. And I knew he was in clinic. It was a Thursday afternoon Mm -hmm. and I just went straight out to him. He did a CT scan and the next day called and said, Hey, it's back. And it wrapped around your spine, which was the back pain I'd been feeling. And the worry was it was starting to infuse into my spinal, um, my spinal cord and fluid, I guess. And I will say that the, you know, on one level, I really, really in my heart believed I was cured. I really believed that getting my brother's stem cells 
going through the bone marrow transplant, I really believe that was the cure because the transplant, they call it a potentially curative option. And I'd done so well post-transplant. I didn't have any side effects. You know, it was, I felt like me again. I felt like I was back to this little calmer, happy life. And now I was a mom, you know, and I guess I, in a way it was like, I felt like I'd learned my lesson. I felt like I was on a path that God wanted me on. It didn't make sense to me. And then, you know, you think I've got a five-year-old, five-week-old and a two-year-old at home. Like I can't deal with this right now. I mean, I, Mm. I cannot, this, it, it just, it was devastating on every level to the point where I couldn't honestly, it was like, I had to, you know, distance myself from the truth because I, I, it was too much. It was just, it was too terrifying, you know, and these, these babies needed me and they needed their mom and I needed them. And it was, we'd gone through so much and these miracle babies were here and, you know, it, I, I just, I could not, I couldn't process it. It absolutely gutted me. So we started treatment very, we flew back to MD Anderson. We got our plan within, I think a matter of days. And I did chemo um, in Los Angeles for, I think four, four four-ish months. I can't remember exactly. Um, And I was very, very sick with that. I was very, very, very sick with that. We hired a nanny, which I never thought I'd do, never wanted to do, ever wanted to do. Um, we joke, I think we interviewed 32 and I just, nope, nope, nope. And my mom had come out and my husband were like, Caroline, you got to pick someone, you know, I'm like, they are not taking care of my babies. I am taking care of my babies, you know, Mm -hmm. but I think my husband, it was, it was wearing on him. He was trying to be dad to two, a newborn and a two-year-old and then trying to be at the hospital with me. And, and, um, I just knew it was not right. And I prayed about it a, a lot. And one day, I think it was number 33, she pulled up and in her little red car, as we call it. And I remember she got out and I was sitting on the couch looking out the window and I looked at Tom and I said, I like her. And my husband said, she's hired. (laughs) (laughs) And she slowly walked up and and I remember Riley, our dog was, was by the front door and she opened the door. And I'll never forget, she looked at Riley and she said, hello, senor, and acknowledged Riley. And I thought, oh, yeah, this is it. She's my <laughs> angel. And she never tried to take Tommy, my baby, out of my arms. You know, like she didn't want to show me how great she was with kids. She just, mm-hmm. and so her name was Frances. We nicknamed her Boomba. And she was with us 10 years until she retired. And we talked to her probably once a week and she comes to visit and she was my angel. And I still say, you're not real. You are an angel. (laughs) I think Mm -hmm. I'm going to hug you and you're going to turn into stardust. Like she just, (laughs) she became the kid's second mom, you know, which she saved us. And listen, there was, there were times I resented her for that. There were times that after being in the hospital so many weeks at a time, my kids wanted her. They didn't want me. You know, when Tommy was six months old and I think I've been in the hospital two months and I got home and he was terrified of me, you know, I didn't have hair and I had these tubes coming out and he just wanted Francis and Mm -hmm. it ripped my heart out. But I also knew that they loved her and she loved them. She lived with us. She, she did everything for us. Mm -hmm. And I think that for me, 
that third diagnosis, having to give up control again and trust that knocked me into the, if I was type A plus plus before now I'm like a type D, like I'm just like, whatever, you know, like I read somewhere the other day, this author that I love, she, she said she has uh, two sets of prayers that she'll use. One is uh, in the morning, she says help. And at the end of the day, her prayers, thank you. Mm-hmm. And on other days, her morning prayer is whatever. And the end of the day is, oh, well, you know, and it's sort <laughs> of this like, it sums it up of this, you know, and that's kind of what it was. It was like either help and thank you or whatever. Oh, well, because I just, I had to let it, I had to let it all go because that was the diagnosis that I almost didn't make it through. I mean, I hit my rock bottom the pain, the physical pain, the fear, the, you name it. I mean, they had to hit me so much harder because we'd already tried this and it hadn't worked. Mm. And, you know, my uncle's words came back because he was true. There was a new clinical trial that was happening. There were 68 patients. My doctor got me in as number 66. There was a 40% mortality rate, but it was our, it was really our only option. And you know, I signed my life away before I, I went in. Well, before I started all of the chemo, it was kind of a whole package. And, and it was, I thought I knew what I was getting myself into. I'd done this before. It wasn't even, wasn't even close. Wow. And my Can brother I ask was, you a question yeah, about that? Because you talk about it was so much harder and you had to really battle back. Mm-hmm. Um, t- what what did you cling to in those darkest moments? What, mm-hmm. what made you keep fighting? What made you keep going when you were at rock bottom? You know, I think that I, I I've had this question often and I, I think about this a lot. I remember when the hospital, I'd always taken one of the big canvas photos, you know, I had one of the kids and I had one of the kids in Riley. Mm. And before I left for the hospital for the big transplant where I kind of knew I was going to be going in for a very long time. And I didn't know if I was coming back. I remember, you know, it's, it was almost like I was trying to distance myself emotionally from the kids a little bit because it, it was this, I didn't mean to, but it was almost this subconscious way of sort of like, well, if they lose me, it'll be easier for them. And if I don't come, it'll, you know, it was almost this like trying to make it hurt less way. Mm-hmm. And with Riley, I didn't have to do that again because it's an animal, you know, at the mm-hmm. end of the day. It, but, and I knew he was there with the kids and they loved him. And I, I, that comforted me a lot. And I think um, there was a moment they did part of this clinical trial, which was counterintuitive, but they did chemo after the transplant as well. They gave me a few rest days and then did chemo. Wow. That was what really hit. That's where I really hit the bottom. That's where I said um, on one morning, nurse Jan, um, I'll never forget Jan. She came in. They do the chemo at about 430 in the morning so that it's done by the time the doctors come through and make their rounds. And she brought it in and, you know, she's in her space suit because the chemo is so strong that if it touched her hand, it would burn the skin through. And so wow. they're completely... Um, I mean, it looks like I'm an Ebola patient, like it really, you know, and she came in and, and started hanging it. And I just said, no, I'm done. I am done. You know, I was, 
I had holes um, that had burned through my esophagus and was constantly throwing up blood and because the blood was coming through and my whole body was in pain and and I, I just couldn't do it. I was done. And I remember Jan just sat with me like, you've got to do this. And I remember saying, why? Why do I have to? Because it's too hard. Because I cannot, I don't have it in me to come back. And we talked it through, but ultimately she kind of pointed towards those canvas prints, the pictures. And she said, look at those two babies and look at that dog. <laughs> He's huge. <laughs> and it really was this... Um, I didn't want to, I'm going to be honest. I did not want, I really did not want to. She said, just squeeze my hand. You don't even have to say the word. I just need you to squeeze my hand to let me know that you're in this. And it was the last thing I wanted to do because I didn't want to fight. I didn't have it in me to fight. So I didn't do it for me. I did it for them. And, you know, I ultimately I squeezed her hand and the funny thing is she was going to hang that bag no matter what, even if they did knock me out to hang that bag. But I think Jan knew that there was such an emotional component to healing and to fighting and to surviving that she didn't want to do it to me. She wanted me to be actively fighting as well, because it was, that's what, that's what heals, you know, that's what gives people a fighting chance really. Um, she needed me to, to, to tell myself and to recommit to doing it. Mm. And that respect and that um, kindness she gave me, even though, you know, I, it was the most powerful moment for me. And it really was that turning point of, okay, I guess I'm in it. That it was absolutely, it was that moment. And wow. Many times after I just, damn it, Jan, <laughs> but it was, it, it was, it was, you know, it was, we were already in it. We were doing it. And, um, but I, you know, I think if I didn't have those, if I didn't have Ellie and Tommy at the time, I don't think I would have squeezed her hand, but I did. And I, you know, I did it for them hundred percent. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And it, it's amazing. The power of choice in our brains, in our, in, in our souls, that even though it may be the hardest decision of our life, like it was for you, yeah. uh, that choice, even though it's hard, I choose to live. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Yeah. It's, it was powerful enough to pull you through that awful <laughs> third round <laughs> of yeah. battling this disease back. You know, it's just, it's a miracle. It really is you've shared some powerful um, lessons Mm -hmm. um, throughout your story, hanging in there one more day, this power, this choice of choosing to live, Mm -hmm. which is powerful. And sometimes you need to make it more than once. Mm -hmm. And at times when you don't want to, but Mm -hmm. you have a reason, you have a why to keep living, Mm -hmm. keep living, right? Never giving up hope. Right. Ever. Oh my goodness. That is so incredible. Now, let me ask you this. In one of your comments, you mentioned that, that hope, you said, never, ever give up hope. Even when you think there is none, there always is. It just may not look the way we thought it would look. Right. Explain that last phrase to me that sometimes hope doesn't look the way we thought it would look. 
I'll give an example. Yes. That I think this is where I really, really um, realized this, this about hope. Because, you know, I think sometimes if you talk about hope, people that have had a, a loss or a tragedy or trauma, I understand they're kind of rolling their eyes and saying, hope is just this shiny word. And if you want to think that, go ahead. But I've had the, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I, I understand that. I really do. My, my dad, as I mentioned, is a, is a surgeon and he had a twin brother and I think it was last year before COVID, he was, um, his twin brother went into the ICU and I was there with them and my cousins and my aunt and it did not look good. And I remember sitting with them. I was up all night with them and I listened to them and I saw their tears, but I also saw this hope and this almost, you know, this, um, joy in thinking of when we get through this and when dad comes home and I, my dad came the next day and I kind of pulled him aside and I said, dad, look, you're a doctor. This is your twin brother. I need you to tell me, is he going to make it? Cause it doesn't sound good. And my dad is very practical, very practical, you know, and uh, he's a brain surgeon. So it takes a lot to get his attention. There's not a lot. that's really a big deal in terms of medical. And he, you know, he did something very uncharacteristic, something very uncharacteristic for him. He just said, Caroline, you can never take hope away from someone. And that was so not him because he's very, um, analytical, black, white, you know, there was, he can, you can never take hope away from someone. In retrospect, my dad knew his brother wasn't going to make it and his brother passed away the next day. But I saw what my dad did. You know, he didn't say to my aunt and my cousins, guys, you need to prepare yourself. He's not going to make it. And I think that's what my uncle's doctors had been trying to tell everybody in a very kind way. Mm -hmm. And my dad could have so easily gone in and said something similar and prepared them. I think deep down, they knew their dad and husband, and they knew he wasn't going to make it, but they needed to hold on to that hope. And that doesn't mean there was a happy ending. doesn't mean that they brought him out of the hospital and they're all home together. But when he passed, I've talked to them about this. It was a beautiful moment and they were all there together. And the hope didn't ever leave them. It shifted. And then it turned into this, how do we hold on to that? And how do we hold on to him? And how do we honor him and his memory? And they never lost it. And their hope now is my cousin just had a baby and they named him after my uncle. I hope this little boy grows up and I hope he hears these stories about my dad. And I hope he knows what a kind man he was. And they still have hope. It's not hoping that my uncle will live because he's, he didn't, it's hoping for other things. Mm -hmm. And so when I say that, I don't mean that hope is going to guarantee a happy outcome. Hope is what keeps us going. And maybe, you know, God has a plan. We don't know what his plan is. And it's not always what we want. Many times it's not what we want. So hope isn't saying, well, I want this outcome. And if I don't get it, then I'm out. It's just hoping to get to a place where we can sort of accept the situation and be okay and then keep going. And 
Because if we don't have that, why are we doing this? If we're just going to be, you know, if we're going to throw our hands up and give up, why are we living? Because we can't fully live unless we hope. That's just what it is. Mm, I love that. We're not really living unless we hope. That is, that is true because so much of life is what we look forward to. And sometimes when someone we love passes away, perhaps that hope shifts to, I will see them again. Yeah. You know, totally. And it's hard to hope. I think it's hard because you're vulnerable, you know, and being vulnerable is very scary, very, very scary. And it's so much easier to put up a wall or a guard or pretend like we don't care or pretend like, you know, when you show yourself and when you have hope, that's giving emotion to it. Mm -hmm. And that we know we could get our hearts broken. We know we could be devastated, but we're still choosing to hope and we're still choosing to show up even though we know. And I think that is so incredibly courageous, maybe the most courageous thing we do. You're right. You're Mm -hmm. absolutely right. It does take courage to -hmm. have hope and to hope for outcomes that we, you know, maybe are dependent on other people's choices or Mm -hmm. something that God doesn't see is the right thing to happen in our lives. You know, it's hard. It's really, really hard. It is. Oh my goodness. This has been so amazing Mm -hmm. to dive down deep and and to hear these heart-wrenching stories, but to also come to understand a little bit more about what hope truly is, since that Mm -hmm. is, you know, the focus of my podcast and the focus of what you do. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you this. You, you, you mentioned um, in your notes that one of the things that you would share as a tip to someone who is in either a cancer situation or a situation where they're struggling Mm -hmm. is to listen to your God voice, Mm -hmm. your intuition or your Mm -hmm. gut. Yeah. Talk, talk me through why you would share that tip with, with someone. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that before cancer, as I mentioned, you know, I didn't really listen to my body. I kind of told my body what to do. It was, I had a plan and I was going to do it. I didn't ask opinions. I didn't check in with myself. I just was going to do it. And I think that, you know, when I was brought to my knees, when anyone's brought to their knees, I think we rely on our faith more than we do in a day-to-day. I think in a day-to-day, it's more of a, hey there, how you, you know, it's more of a conversation with God, at least for me. And it's more of a, a gratitude and a forgiveness. And a, when I'm really in a spot where I don't know what to do, or I don't even, even if it's a little decision, I don't know what to, what to decide. I'm not sure. I think for me, a big part of prayer is, is asking to help me be quiet enough and still enough to just listen, because I call it my God voice, because it's almost like we all have the answers within us. Mm. And I think one of the biggest gifts I was given through cancer was realizing that we all have the answers. God gives us the answers, whether it's intuition, uh, being, um, you know, I call it the God voice, whatever it is just being able to listen. And, you know, if people contact me and want advice or what, you know, they have a relative that was diagnosed or they were diagnosed or whatever it is, always happy to talk about it. But I always start by saying, Hey, listen, this was my journey. You are going to have your own. Mm -hmm. And 
Uh, if you want to ask questions, opinions, absolutely to anyone, doctors, patients, other cancer survivors, you, but listen, you know, in your gut, you are going to know the right decision for you mm-hmm. because you have it. God's going to give it to you. It's there. And that to me was so powerful and comforting to just to be able to know we always have it and can rely on that. Wow. I'm thinking back to you hiring your cute little nanny, you know, oh, how you yeah. just knew, <laughs> Yeah, you know, that was yeah. you using your, your God voice, your intuition, your gut. You're yeah. like, this is the one <laughs> I it's know. It. One. Well, and it's so funny. I've talked to her so many times about that. Like, you know, we call her Boomba, you know, Boomba when you pulled up and it was like, oh, <laughs> you know, and I've told her this story so many times. And one day I said, I'm curious, what did you think when you pulled up into our house? Uh, and because we lived in a little cottage in um, Pasadena, California at the time. And she said, Oh, Miss Caroline, I got out and I said, Oh, no, no, no. They cannot afford me. <laughs> uh, okay, we had totally separate experiences. You know, it was like, it was so funny. Oh, how cute. <laughs> yeah. She's but it all worked out for the best. <laughs> it all worked out. It all worked out. But it's true. That's a perfect example of that. You're right. You're right. Oh my goodness. No, I love that. I love that. I love that. Yeah. Now, let me ask you this. You, you also mentioned a tip that you reemerge from your battle, a changed person. Yeah. Tell me why that is and why the people around you also emerge from your battle change and what you need to do to readjust mm-hmm. to the change. I know for me, and I assume for others who've gone through, I would say trauma in general. I think that we go through it personally. And I think those around us go through it in their own way as well. I always say like, you know, you're, you're put in the trenches and you have to kind of reemerge, right? And we have to claw our way out, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like, it's messy and it's ugly and it's dirty, but you come through this and I was, uh, I don't know what the word is, upset or surprised or unprepared for the person that I was on the other side. And it was uncomfortable because I knew who I was before, but I didn't know who this new person was, but I knew it was a different person. And I knew I cared about different things. And I just, I was, I, it was new to me. So there was that, but then there was my husband, there were my friends, my parents, my brother, those that were close to me that went through it with me because Mm -hmm. they went in that same trench And they went in it a little differently and got out of it a little bit differently, but we all went through it. So they were different as well. Mm. And, you know, on the most um, casual level, the friendships, some were strengthened, some were lost, some came out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. And I think on the most intimate level, you know, with, with your spouse or a sibling, I think just being aware that we're, you're both a little different because you both experienced it. It wasn't just me, the patient, it was all of us and giving us room to sort of figure out who we are and giving time and space for the relationship to sort of change as well. 
because you don't want to, I think we tried to keep it in the same little groove it had always been in, but that groove no longer existed. So then Mm -hmm. what's the new groove? What's the new normal? And it was scary because it, it almost felt like, well, we're losing what we had and we did lose it, but we created something so much more meaningful and beautiful and messy, but it was, it, I think that's what we always were supposed to have. And again, that was sort of God's way of pushing us over to that place Mm. because it was more natural and it was, it was more, um, spiritual and it was more authentic really really but we Mm -hmm. had to recognize it and allow it to happen Mm -hmm. and again same with family members friendships all of it and again that's vulnerable and scary because there were some really hard truths we all had to face and I lost some relationships that were very special to me but I think losing those made space and room to strengthen those that I had because they're just so much deeper and richer and um, more meaningful and beautiful now. Oh, I love that. Yeah. yeah I, I think that when we go through trauma, that the, the things that are maybe not as important, they just tend to fall out of our lives. You know, um, it just, it just naturally happens because you just don't have time or energy. Right for the things that are truly unimportant and the things yeah. that you really need last yeah. and stay. Yeah. It's almost like you, you, it's almost like a holding on to it with a slippery grip, like the stuff that doesn't matter. It's almost like, even if you try, you just can't, it just, so it just, it just, you can't, you know, because it's mm. not, you're not meant to have that. Mm. And then the things that are, you, you can't not hold on to it, you know, right? it just becomes so clear. Oh, so, so going through trauma can really help us help clarify for us the things that are most important. Mm -hmm. I think so. I think that's one of those silver linings, you know, I think there's a reason we go through it again, not to say that it's easy, but there, there's a lot of good, a lot of good. Oh, that's phenomenal. I love that. Now, let me ask you, were there any favorite Bible verses that just became your mantra or that you loved through this whole process? Yes. So this one was Romans 8, 24 and 25. And it is, for in this hope, we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Mm. Tell me why that resonated with you. You know, I think it it has been a struggle for me in the past. I think with faith, hope, whatever it may be that that you can't see, and it's not tangible, and that I couldn't read about in a medical school book. There's Mm -hmm. no proof. There was no theory. There was no algorithm. You know, it's a trust thing, right? You're trusting. And for me, that was hard. It was really hard. I think that when you're brought to your knees, right, you're in that place where you're thinking you have to depend on something, right? And and that's when I felt my faith strongest. And when I kind of reemerged in a different direction, a different person, a stronger person, for me, it was that 
hope, that faith, that God voice, that's what I hold on to. And that's what I hold on to every single day. That's what I teach my kids to hold on to, you know? And I think knowing that A, God's always there, B, God's never going to let us down, and C, he gives us that hope for a reason. I mean, I think ultimately it all, it all comes from him. So call mm-hmm. it what you want, hope, faith, whatever it is, you could argue it's the same thing because it's a gift and it keeps us going in the right direction because we, when we rely on hope and faith, we rely on that God voice and we, we rely on that trust. And we kind of resign ourselves to the fact, like I was talking about earlier, you know, takes the pressure off because Mm -hmm. he's in control. So if we can just learn to listen and to follow, it's kind of like, Hey, he's got it. (laughs) Go along for the ride. And it, and it does free us up a bit to, um, enjoy the ride a bit, you know, again, not that it's easy, but it's beautiful. It's Mm -hmm. as beautiful as it is messy. So true, right? (laughs) It's as beautiful as it is messy. I love that. Oh my goodness. Okay. Resources. What are some of the books or people that, that Mm kind of help that you follow that help you get through this that you would recommend to others? I think, well, Brene Brown, I adore her. She talks about vulnerability. It makes a lot of sense to me. And she's a Texan like I am, you know, (laughs) I just, I love her grit and her humor and it's relatable and understandable. Um, I love Jen Hatmaker. She's a great church in Austin and she's just, again, a Texan and just her, you know, the way she talks about faith to me, it's just all about love and acceptance. And that's what I always go back to, you know, I think Mm -hmm. sometimes the details of, uh, you know, what church believes what and this and that at the end of the day, it's like, Hey, this is, it's, it's really all the same thing. Mm -hmm. I love Chris Carr. I think, um, I became very interested in nutrition and anti-cancer lifestyles. And there's such, such, such a huge amount of nutritional information out there, oftentimes contradicting each other. And I, think I learned through her, just listen to what feels right to you. Again, go back to that mm. inner wisdom, that God voice. And it, she just resonated with me. She actually lives with cancer and she wow. treats herself. There's not a, a treatment option. So she treats herself with, with food and she's been able to keep her cancer in check. And so she lives with that fear and anxiety, but it's pretty beautiful to see the way that she has created this life that is just joyful and beautiful and honest as well. Wonderful. And her that's Chris Carr. Yeah. Wonderful. We yeah. will definitely link these people in the show notes so other people can find them as well. Because that sounds amazing. Right. And people are going to want to connect with you. So how do they do that? <laughs> so please yeah. give us your resource. Well, of course, I would love that. Yeah. I send out... Um, on average, a bi-monthly, I call them my hits of hope. And there are posts and they're usually, you know, hopefully a little inspiring. They can be funny. They can be more serious. It's sort of, you know, um, all focused around hope. Sometimes I'll, you know, talk about stories that I've heard or friends or things that have been impactful and relevant. 
So you can sign up on the website. And then my email is also on there. So love. Tell us your website. Yes. Well, it's dearreillyrose.com. So named it after my dog. Actually wrote a book, which will be coming out hopefully this year. Yay. (laughs) And it's titled Dear Riley Rose. So wonderful. Oh my goodness. This has been so amazing. Caroline, thank you so much for being willing to dive deep with us and, and tell us about those moments when it it was really hard and you had to make a choice and you chose life because that inspires me and gives me hope. I think it all goes back to no matter what's happening in our lives or our world, there's always goodness. There's always joy. There's always hope. And sometimes we just have to look for it. Hey, thanks so much for listening to today's show. If you like what you heard, subscribe so you can get your weekly dose of powerful stories of hope. I know there are many of you out there who are going through a hard time, and I hope you found useful things that you can apply to your own life in today's podcast. If you would like to access the show notes of today's show, please visit my website, storiesofhopepodcast.com. There you will find a summary of today's show, the transcript, and one of my favorite takeaways. You know, if someone kept coming to mind during today's episode, perhaps that means that you should share this episode with them. Maybe there was a story shared or a quote or a scripture verse that they really, really need to hear. So go ahead and share this podcast. May God bless you, especially if you are struggling with hope to carry on and with the strength to keep going when things get tough. Remember to walk with Christ and he will help you bear the burden. And above all else, remember God loves you.